0: Hello and welcome to The Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, July the 17th. This week's podcast has an HIV theme as the issue of The Lancet dated July the 18th to the 24th will be going to the International Aid Society meeting taking place in Cape Town, South Africa over the next few days. In a moment we'll be hearing from one of the authors of a randomised trial looking at the potential health benefits of circumcision for men with HIV infection and we'll also be hearing part of an interview between my colleague Pam Daz and the next incumbent of the International AIDS Society, Robin Gorner. Just before that, to point out that in print this week we published the remarkable account of the near-total face transplantation procedure done on an American woman. This was published online on Wednesday, July the 15th. But let's go over to Uganda, where earlier I spoke to Dr. Maria Waver from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She is one of the authors of a randomized trial done in Uganda to assess the potential of male circumcision for men who have HIV infection. Dr. Waver, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet from Uganda. My pleasure. Firstly, can you just give us some context here? Can you just very briefly remind us what we know about male circumcision and its potential for health benefits in the HIV context?
1: Basically, there have been three trials of male circumcision in HIV negative men, and these trials all showed very consistent results that circumcision reduced the risk of HIV acquisition in negative males by 50 to 60%. So this was a major breakthrough with respect to adult HIV prevention, one of the first breakthroughs in over a decade when it comes to prevention. Obviously, though, a big question arises with respect to circumcision in HIV-positive men, in the sense that once HIV programs roll out, it's inevitable that HIV-infected men will also seek the service. If circumcision becomes really normative, that is that more and more men are becoming circumcised, then it would almost be stigmatizing, not to be circumcised. And thus it would be, we believe, very important for programs to for circumcision to HIV positive men. Not necessarily promote it to them, but not deny men if they request it and if they don't have any medical contraindications. In the social context, positive men are very likely to be seeking circumcision. We thought it was incredibly important to find out whether circumcision was safe in HIV positive men whether it's had any health benefits before the positive men and also whether circumcision, male circumcision, has any benefits or other effects in the female partners of men who are becoming circumcised, whether those men are HIV positive or HIV negative. The bottom line is the world is not only made up of HIV-negative men, and so we have to look at the entire population and the effect of circumcision on various aspects of the population. And it was within this context that we conducted the trial of male circumcision in HIV-positive men, randomized them to either receive circumcision immediately or after uh, a waiting period of approximately two years, and we also invited them to invite their... Spouses to be followed. So we followed spouses of positive men who have been randomized to receive circumcision as well as spouses of HIV positive men who have been randomized to wait two years to receive circumcision in order to see whether they derived any benefits with respect to HIV or other sexually transmitted
0: infection. Just to clarify, we have HIV infected men in your study and we're looking at HIV acquisition in their female partners. Obvious question, your analysis only included partners that were discordant, i.e. the HIV-infected men had to have female partners who did not have HIV.
1: Well, the trial design was actually rather more complex than that. We did two trials in parallel. One was the trial of HIV-negative men in order to assess HIV and STI acquisition in HIV-negative men by circumcision status and that was funded by the US NIH. With Gates Foundation funding, we also followed the spouses of the negative men in order to see whether male circumcision might reduce the acquisition of other sexually transmitted infections and vaginal infections in the partners of negative men. In parallel, we conducted the trial of positive men, and for the positive men, we invited them to invite their spouses much as we did with the HIV-negative men. And we enrolled spouses of these men, whether the spouses were negative, HIV-negative themselves, or HIV-positive. For the spouses who were um, HIV-negative, we could look at HIV transmission by circumcision status from the positive men. But we could, in all the spouses, whether negative or positive, and whether married to positive or negative men, we could look at whether male circumcision reduced the transmission of other sexually transmitted infections. So the paper in The Lancet really reports one very important segment of these parallel studies, and that is the effect of male circumcision in positive men on those female partners who were negative.
0: Thank you for that. And let's focus on the results because actually this trial was stopped early, wasn't it?
1: Yes, the trial was stopped early because of futility. That is the um, Independent Data Safety and Monitoring Board periodically looked at the data as is, you know, the the usual procedure. They deemed that we were not seeing the positive effect we had hoped for and that statistically we would be very unlikely to see the positive effect that we had hoped for. That is reduced HIV transmission in the circumcised men compared to the uncircumcised, HIV-positive men. They also noted that, particularly in those couples, that where the male was circumcised and where they resumed sexual intercourse before the surgical scar was completely healed, that there was a suggestion the transmission may be higher if the men were circumcised than in comparable control arm men or in circumcised, positive men in couples where they waited until the surgical wound was completely healed. So this finding of potentially higher transmission did not reach statistical significance. So it could have been by chance alone. On the other hand, it was certainly a very disappointing finding and they deemed that from the viewpoint of safety, it would be better to not continue enrolling positive men and their negative partners within the trial. But the main reason to stop the trial was because of futility thats That is that we would not be able to reach a statistically significant benefit and there was a suggestion although again no definitive evidence of higher transmission in couples who are doing sex too early.
0: So Dr. Waver, a disappointing finding from this trial but some very important take-home messages aren't there?
1: Very much so. There are a number of very important take-home messages. First of all, circumcision programs absolutely do need to be rolled out in uh, populations in Africa where there is a substantial risk of HIV infection. The great majority of men who will be circumcised will be HIV negative men. And if they're circumcised and have a lower risk of HIV acquisition, then they're going to be much less likely, if, if they don't acquire HIV, then they will not transmit to female partners. And this will be a major net benefit to women. Secondly, with respect to circumcision of positive men, we would be very concerned if positive men weren't offered the service if they request it, so as not to force them to go and seek it from unsafe sources in order to avoid stigmatization. If they seek circumcision from unsafe sources, particularly sources that don't also promote safe sex, abstinence, faithfulness, condoms, then we could be doing a lot of societal harm if they get unsafe circumcisions and they don't get the necessary HIV prevention messages. Thirdly, we did see some additional benefits to women partners of circumcised men, both HIV negative circumcised men and HIV positive circumcised men. We saw reduced trichomonas infection in the partners of the positive men who were circumcised and in the partners of the men who were, uh, of the negative men who were circumcised, we saw reductions in other sexually transmitted infections as well. Uh, these are, you know, very important public health benefits over and above those of HIV. Finally, we we'll also note that if we identify HIV-infected men who are becoming circumcised, we can provide them with health education, but we can also strongly, strongly counsel them not to resume intercourse until the wound is fully healed, which is approximately six weeks. And if we can counsel them to do that, then any increased risk to female partners, even if it's a theoretical risk, would be avoided. I should also mention that over and above the HIV effects in men, we see other health benefits to positive and negative men if they get circumcised. Now, this is not the partners of the men, but the men themselves. Whether they're negative or positive, we see lower rates of genital ulcer disease in the men who are circumcised compared to the uncircumcised men. We have published data on human papillomavirus in the HIV negative men who are circumcised, and their rates of human papillomavirus are lower than the uncircumcised men. But in our trial also, and these are data that are not yet published, we're seeing reductions in human papillomavirus in HIV-positive men circumcised to circumcision, uh, randomized to circumcision compared to men randomized to waiting. So there are definite health benefits of circumcision to HIV-negative and positive men over and above the uh, the HIV effect. So that given the overall benefits of circumcision with respect to HIV in the population, with respect to sexually transmitted infections in positive and negative men and evidence of some reductions in sexually transmitted infections in the lives of negative and positive men, we think that this is a very, very important public health intervention and that it really should be made available to populations. But it has to be done safely. It has to be done by trained practitioners. And ideally, it has to be done in centers that can also provide really good health education, promotion of... Uh, faithfulness, condoms, abstinence, and wherever possible can provide couples HIV results in counselling or at the very least referral to good counselling programmes.
0: It's a very interesting and a very important trial and it's been a pleasure talking to you on the line from Uganda. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet.
1: My pleasure entirely. Thank you
0: very much. Many thanks to Dr. Maria Waver. Now, in a profile this week, my colleague Pam Daz interviews the new head of the International Aid Society, Robin Gorner. Let's hear a brief extract relating to it. And the full audio interview is in a web extra audio linked to the online version of the profile.
2: In terms of the major themes of the forthcoming IAS meeting in Cape Town, what issues do you hope will receive attention? I think it's a a very exciting conference. It's the first time the pathogenesis conference has been held in Africa. And one of the innovations at this conference is the track on operational research, which is I think extremely important to deal with this question about how do we actually translate that which we know on science into practical interventions. And I realize now one of the things I didn't mention is is for me one of the most disappointing issues in terms of what we haven't done as a global community is that we haven't scaled up PMTCT. And I think that's both an issue of itself, but also a tremendously important issue in terms of our overall response and how we think to the future about potential vaccines and microbicides and also scaling up interventions like medical male circumcision. So understanding better what it is that stops us from doing what we know to be the right and the correct thing seems to me to be emerging as an equally important issue to understanding the biomedical science and and the social sciences. So I think this is a really important innovation that we are going to be looking at the basic science questions and treatment issues, the biomedical prevention and also operational research here. I think there's going to be some very exciting new data coming out very much on that area. I haven't been given any sneak previews, but I'm told that there will be interesting discussions on strategy trials around biological monitoring versus clinical monitoring of when to start treating. I think there'll be new data on PMTCT and there's going to be some very interesting discussions around understanding latent viral reservoirs um, and chronic immune activation and I think it's also politically an important moment and it'll be immediately after the G8 and it's the first conference that's been held after President Barack Obama has taken over in the US and of course after we've begun to understand the real impact of the global economic recession on funding for health programs. So, a lot of big change as well as the big changes here in South Africa in terms of having a really yeah. Uh-huh a revigorated approach to HIV. And I think that's also something that will be very important in terms of thinking about the next steps for the IAS and its role. And I know that's part of the discussions going on around the strategy it is, you know, the role of the IAS with, with other partners around monitoring of progress on research. I think it is something where it's not so much that donors don't necessarily think about the importance of research, but I think they often have different pots of yeah. I mean, certainly that's the case in the UK and I believe it to be the case in the US. You have very different processes for managing research and then often operations research falls through the cracks in the middle. If you could rub a magic lamp and wish for three (laughs) things to change around the issues of tackling HIV-AIDS, what would they be? One sort of has to, it's a bit trite, but you have to say, well, I want the vaccine and the cure, please. I mean, that's the obvious thing. But as I reflected on coming up with the obvious answer... Actually, I'm not sure I believe that is what I wish for. I mean, I wish for it, but I only wish for it if it comes with the ability to implement it. When we get the vaccine, when we get the cure, when we get the microbicide, it'll be no use to us if it's the same as CMTCT. Nice. For 10 years on, we see miserable progress in implementing something which is frankly pretty straightforward. So I only want the vaccine and the cure if it comes with the real knowledge and financial and political commitment to doing it and putting it into place. I think my second magic wish will be... I would love to see AIDS stop being the lightning rod for stigma and discrimination. I suppose it's a rather kind of broad magical wish for total social justice to be in place. You know, from my long involvement in HIV, it has always seemed to intensify homophobia, racism, sexism, any of those areas where people feel prejudiced, any of those areas where human rights are abused, it seems to just get that extra push from HIV. So I'd love to see that come to an end because I'm sure that's why we are not managing or a big part of why we're not managing to respond adequately to HIV because it buys into so many underlying prejudices and lacks of equality in society. And my third more immediate and perhaps achievable one is an end to the travel restrictions that countries impose against people with HIV. Something I worked on a lot in Australia when there was the beginning of a move to exclude people with HIV from long-term residency. Obviously it's quite live at the moment in conversations in the US and it's great to see there's some progress there but I think across the globe we need to look hard at that and it it does link to the issue of human rights and discrimination but it's also very practical. We need to be able to talk with each other, we need for people to be able to be united with families and, and work and do all the things they need to do and as we start to move towards universal access and HIV becomes more treatable it's really reaching a ridiculous position. It's always been deeply unfortunate that there have been these travel restrictions but I think it's time now to draw a line in the sand.
0: Many thanks to Pam and good luck to Robin Gorner. Well that's just about it for this week although next week there will be more HIV coverage as we publish articles online relating to the International AIDS Society meeting and our roving reporter Peter Hayward will be sending in some audio news from that meeting. Many thanks for listening, see you next week.